Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. Thank you very much indeed, as always, for being here. It feels like football has been away for a long time. It's only been a couple of weeks, but the internationals are now over. Well, until, you know, the season breaks for a World Cup right in the middle of it. But for now... Football is back, and it kicks off again with a North London derby. A tasty, exciting, high-stakes, high-pressure fixture as we go into a month in October, which is absolutely jam-packed with Europa League and Premier League action. Nine games between now and the 31st or the 30th of October, whatever it is. So, loads to get our teeth into. Now, this particular episode of the Arscast is a little bit shorter than I had planned for and intended it to be. And I'll explain why a little bit later on. To make up for it, though, what I'm going to do this week is uh, release our Patreon preview podcast to everybody. Now, every week we do a Premier League preview podcast for our Patreon members, and we thank them for their uh, continued support. We're very grateful. But because this is a derby, because this episode isn't quite what I intended it to be, I will release that Premier League preview podcast on Patreon, as always, but also on the main podcast feed tomorrow. I'm recording tomorrow around 4 o'clock with Phil Costa. We'll look ahead to the derby, the various bits and pieces, and, of course, Mikel Arteta will have met the press uh, by then. He, he has a press conference around 1 o'clock tomorrow afternoon, so we'll get all the information, all the bits and pieces of team news, all that kind of stuff, and we will talk about the North London derby. That will be available, I'd say, around... F- probably around five o'clock tomorrow afternoon. So that will give you the the North London Derby build-up action that you're going to be craving. Maybe you're going to listen to it as you leave work and uh, stroll for a couple of Friday afternoon post-work pints, whatever it might be. You can listen to it whenever you want ahead of the game, which kicks off, of course, at 12.30 on Saturday afternoon. So that's what we've got coming up in the next 24 hours. In fact, by the time you're listening to this, it'll be much less than that. So you can look forward to that. There isn't a great deal. In fact, there's almost no North London Derby chat in this particular episode because today we are talking stats and we're talking data. And I know that this is a subject that many people are interested in. And it's also a subject, I think, that leaves a lot of people cold. However, I cannot recommend highly enough um, a new book by Rory Smith called Expected Goals, which looks at the way data has, if not transformed football, become so fundamental to football clubs, to football fans, to analysts, to the way clubs recruit, and even to the extent to which the game is played, how the game is played. If you remember a few weeks ago when I spoke to Orbino uh, from Opta, and based on the information and the data that was available to football clubs, the amount of shots from distance reduced drastically because, you know, they could see that those shots very rarely go in. When they go in, they're amazing, but they're not efficient in terms of chances, and that has affected the way the game is played these days. So it is my pleasure to welcome back to the show the Chief Soccer Correspondent from the New York Times, Rory Smith. Hi, Rory. Hello, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. You're also the author of a brand new book called Expected Goals, which is a term, I think, that still to some football fans makes them go, so maybe we should talk about what this book is and what it isn't so it's it's not got any equations in it i think that's the best way that i can make people sort of reassure people it's it's a book about the history of data um in football particularly in the last sort of 15 20 years when i think it has become whether you like it or not a particularly important 
facet of the game to the extent that I think mm. it is now in, starting to influence the game that we see played in front of us. Whether you think of your team as being a data team or not, that mm. there's a good chance they're doing stuff that um, that is influenced in some way by, by the rise of data. But I think it's also a book about um, the chaos of football and people trying to impose order as they understand it on an industry that that absolutely doesn't have any order in it whatsoever. And so it's kind of two things. It's, it is partly a chronological history of data, and mm. it's also partly a sort of um, biography of an American professor who tries to buy a football club, yeah, uh, I mean- which, which is, is there to kind of highlight not just the tension between those two worlds, but how, how difficult it is for anybody to navigate life in football because football is more chaotic than any of us think i think yeah i mean that's a that's like a, a secondary plot that's running through this is the yeah. the attempt i mean it, when you say it out loud there i was reading the book and i was going this is quite interesting these guys they're thinking about a data-led model for a football club which is you know it's a really interesting thing to do but then when you just say it out loud to an american professor thinking i'll come and i'll buy you know not him personally, uh, get get involved with a, a group that might buy a football club and we can run it in this data-driven way. It's absolutely mad when you think about the way football clubs are bought and sold and operated and, and everything else. There's a sort of, in a way, a kind of innocence to that idea. And, and I don't want to give anything away about what happens to him and, and those efforts, but where he ends up certainly isn't what he thought when he came up with this idea, I would say. No, not at all. And I think it's th- that story is is quite important to me. Not just not just as I think it's um, it's interesting enough to write half a book about. Yeah. But because I think it really highlights that it's really easy to kind of chide football to look at say baseball or basketball and say, well, why has football been so resistant to data? And I think to an extent that's not true. I think the scale of football's revolution in terms of data and the speed with which it's happened is on a par with baseballs and. Y- it's, this, it's, it's the sort of thing you have to whisper. But Sam Allardyce was actually doing data before Billy Bean. And, you know, you, <laughs> you, you're never going to get Brad Pitt playing Sam Allardyce. But you, it doesn't take too much stuff to happen differently for Sam Allardyce to be cast as that sort of pioneer. And mm. like I find him as, you know, risible a figure as, as anybody else. But in terms of his impact on football, this sounds really stupid. But apart from the obvious ones, Fergie and Wenger and Guardiola, I think you can probably make a case that Allardyce is the most influential manager in the last 20 years in Britain. And that is, I mean, it sounds like, it feels like heresy. Like you feel like sure. you shouldn't say it. But in terms of sports science and in terms of data particularly, he was way ahead of the curve. Um, so you, that, that idea that football's been really slow to embrace data, I think is just not true. Um, it's been quite bad at publicising its use of data and mm. it's been very secretive in terms of telling people that it is using data. Yeah. But it, the, the change has happened. But the... The other side of it that I think is significant and that, that this is where Chris Anderson's story comes in is that football doesn't work in a rational way. Football is run by people who have basically no idea what they're doing. Everyone is continually flying by the seat of their pants. And you're in this ridiculous industry where you can, you can be the smartest person in the room. You can have the best idea and the best way of doing things and this incredibly clear vision of how you want things to be. And if you lose on a Saturday because you know, one of your left backs has an absolute nightmare for no apparent reason, mm. then it all it all falls apart. And you're trying to impose order, this sort of really kind of rational approach of, you know, there's truth in the numbers and data can, can offer us insights into how we can do things more efficiently to an industry that that is at its very core just sort of unavoidably, un, unyieldingly inefficient. And I think the story, uh, the story of Chris, the kind of, it's not just the the chaos of high, trying to buy a club. So mm. I think the, thing, the, the best way that's, to sum that up is that they, the group he was involved with almost bought Aston Villa and that deal fell apart because Christian Benteke did his Achilles. That was enough to scupper the entire takeover. That's how fragile these things are. But then when he does eventually get into football, he sees this other side to it, which is not a sport that's resistant to ideas or unwilling to change or dominated by people who've got this old school thinking. Mm. It's just a load of people trying to keep their jobs. I mean, and that's really important to remember. Yeah, I think that that runs through it because you have, you know, even within one football club, one organization, you would like to think that everybody is on the same page. Everybody's moving in the same direction. Everybody wants the best for the football club. And that's not always 
true, you know, particularly at executive level. And maybe we've seen a bit of that at Arsenal in recent years where perhaps decisions were made not for the benefit necessarily of the football club, but for uh, to fill a vacuum of power that might have been there or whatever else. And and we'll come to the stat DNA chapter um, because there's a very good stat DNA chapter in there. But I, I think what runs through the book is this idea that you have these um, I suppose, truths in numbers, if you can call them that, facts, numbers give you data, how you interpret the data is a thing. But but at the same time, the, the as you say, the, the relentless chaos of football uh, is completely at odds with that at times. It's like trying to find the balance between what the numbers, what the data is telling you, how best to implement it, and then just the sheer randomness of what football can do and because it's not just what you do as a football club it's kind of you know you have to take into account the opposition as well what they can do to you despite your best laid plans going into a game going into a season you're not in control of what you know what happens to you 37 38 times a season yeah and that's relatively unique so there's a there's a company called decision technology who were one of the really early adopters even earlier than arsenal who worked worked with spurs for a long time mm. and their their background was in retail so their their main kind of clients were people like Tesco and they'd go to decision technology and decision technology would run these these experiments effectively so, so Tesco could work out you know how many different types of butter should we put on our shelves to encourage people to buy the the, the most butter we can possibly sell obviously that would, that would be Kerry Gold everyone knows that sure but, of course you know there's no <laughs> there's no better butter but we you know that's that's a the sort of thing that shops are doing all of the time and mm. it's it's kind of a controlled experiment so you can do like one week where you have 10 types of butter and one week where you have five and you you compare the figures and there probably won't be a massive drop off and if you're tesco you can afford to to have the the part of the experiment that doesn't really work because your your sales numbers will you know you're turning over how many millions a year you'll you'll be okay mm. in football you can have a really good idea that comes to you from data and and you can you can't try it can't possibly just try it because you think it might work because if you do that and you lose then you ban jacks and that might be the difference between sure. qualifying for the champions league and not and that will cost you a hundred you know 100 million pounds 50 million pounds on mm. that one game so it's not an it's not an environment that's conducive to thinking about things and also you you get this and maybe we lose sight of this a little bit but it's the relentlessness of it so and this again comes from one of chris's experiences that you know what struck him was that he'd always thought from the outside as though you know, people in football were, were kind of thinking, well, we, we will not use data because it, it kind of contravenes what we think we know. Whereas when he got into football, he, he realised that people are happy to have, you know, the extra weapon in their arsenal. But your manager doesn't care about what the data says. Just all your manager cares about is, is my central midfielder fit? Especially mm. in low, lower down the leads. You know, we've got games Tuesday, Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday. They don't have time to be thinking about grand experiments they they need to keep their jobs they need to keep the the club on a sort of financial financial even keel mm. and their worries and their concerns are much more kind of short term much more immediate than they are can i get a team out when we when we play colchester can i you know c c do i have anyone to score any goals in my team probably not sure um, and i think that that is really significant because in that sort of environment it's really hard to do the things that that people who advocate for, for data and who have envisioned a future for football through data want to do. And then the, the third thing is that particularly the higher up you go, football's intensely political. And, you, and I guess this is because we all feel it so personally, like we all have different ways of interacting with the sport that we see. So some people really love kind of the tactical nuance of football and they will watch a game like, you know, the proverbial chess match. Other people like football does a transfers and that's it feels a bit dirty but it's it's fine like you're if you like football because you like transfers then that's not a problem if you like football because you like the soap opera of it or you like seeing passion and heart that's fine as well and that's true inside clubs everyone has their own little kind of way of seeing it their own belief that their particular expertise is the way to solve the problems that their particular kind of approach is the is the future and when you introduce this this is what arsenal found when you introduce data into that unless you have complete organizational buy-in that the data is valuable and valid and is the kind of overarching power behind the decisions you make, then it just becomes another factor in this sort of endless factionalism between the recruitment staff and the coaching staff sure. and the medical staff and, you know, the executives, the sporting director and the, the chief scout maybe don't like each other. Arsenal have had situations where, you know, they've had two or three executives who don't talk to each other. Mm. 
and yet they're all trying to, they all want the best for the club, but they want the, the best for their version of the club. They want sure. the, the best for the club to, in, to include them in the story. And that makes it really hard to introduce anything that is designed by its nature, I guess, to be kind of big picture and slightly broader. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's so fascinating to think about, um, you know, how these developments are communicated within football clubs. Because when you're talking about Chris, there's a moment um, in the book where, you know, the club he ends up at, they're doing very well, but the numbers are telling him something quite different. And he is like, well... What, what do I say here? How do I say that? I don't want to take the wind out of people's sails. And, and you know, that, that communication of how you, how you communicate the data and what it's telling you to people is a really sensitive area. And sort of going back, I mean, the other thing that really struck me is like, how far down the road would we be in terms of football data if it wasn't for Moneyball? Because pretty much everybody got a copy of Moneyball and went, this is fucking brilliant. I'm getting on board in this. But um it was Billy Bean who said uh, when he was talking about football, I thought that if there was that much emotion going into it, there must be a lot of inefficiency. And that meant there was a lot of opportunity. And and again, that's a really difficult balance to find because you can't quantify some of the things in football which are really important. Like there's no XC for confidence or XB mm. for belief or momentum and these things which really are important in how football clubs operate, whether it's collectively, uh, whether a player is, you know, on top of the world and scoring for, for fun or whatever it is, you can't measure those really. I mean, the output, of course, you can, but but how he feels on the inside, you know, trying to incorporate all that into data and analytics and that kind of stuff is is a really complicated thing. Yeah, impossible. And I think what the, certainly the thing that Chris came to is, is that, People believe in magic and people want to believe in magic. And there is, on some level in football, there, there are things that look like magic. And it, Arsenal, funnily enough, now are, are quite a good example that, you know, obviously the signings this summer were really sensible. They all kind of made sense. There were very few that you looked at and thought, that's a, that's a bad idea. You know, Gabriel Jesus, you think, yeah, that, that is, that's clearly a really smart piece of business. But I don't think anybody would necessarily have automatically assumed that that would then feed into this this completely different feeling around the club. Mm. And that that to me, and not just because this is the arse cast, obviously, but that to me is quite a good example of how there'll have been data fed into those decisions. Obviously, you have the fact that Mikel Arteta knows some of the players, that that um, he's obviously a, a very talented coach and increasingly quite a charismatic leader, that you've got this kind of sense of vision within the club. But you can have all of those things and the signings can come in and struggle for a couple of games and all of a sudden all of it evaporates. Mm. Whereas some kind of alchemy has taken place at Arsenal this year where it's all just kind of clicked. And some of that is testament to the the personal abilities of the people involved, obviously. And some of it is testament to the the, the use of data and whatever else, you know, the, the recruitment strategy and the scouting and the, the, the purpose, you know, the idea that Arteta has for his team. But some of it is not magical but it's in, it's intangible there's not a shadow of a doubt about that that it just it's just something's clicked and that sometimes happens and you can't really predict it and i think it's really important that maybe that's one of the, the roots of tension with data in general is this idea that it's kind of the technocrats trying to, trying to take the spirit from our game but i think most people who work in football and in data accept that there's a lot of it that you can't really control for. It's just a way of making your decisions better. You're giving yourself the, be the best chance to have those, that momentum, that confidence, whatever you want, you want to call it. But you, you still need to harm, you know, you still need to kind of harness the wind a little bit. You can't, you can't quite explain everything. Sure. And it, to me, that idea that, that data and passion, I guess, is a shorthand for, for all of those things are, are at odds with each other is wrong because you, there's, data will bring you so far, just as smart coaching or smart recruitment will take you so far. Mm. Um, but at some point, you're, you're going to need something a little bit, yeah, magical. And I think that's really important because that emo just football is a sport of emotion. Sure. I suspect that's true in baseball as well, to be honest, that you need, you, you need that kind of energy in the clubhouse to work so you could get all the best players, all the best OBPs in baseball into a team. But if they all hate each other, it's not mm. going to work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if, if you speak to people who work in scouting, I remember Monchi at Sevilla saying this to me, one long-standing long Arsenal target Monchi. And um, and he said that the big thing that they kind of have to look for is what sort of person is going to settle well in Seville. Because Seville's a, you know, it's a small city, sure. it's baking hot. Um, it's not Paris or Milan or, or London. You're not going to, you know, there's, you can't 
live like a footballer in that sense in Seville. So they need people who want to just be at home with their families. And you, you can't do that through data. You have to you have to know your market. You have to know what you're selling. You've got to know the sort of person you're looking for. All of that is is just giving yourself the best chance of succeeding. But at some point, you need all the players that you bring into Seville to like each other and want to play for each other. That's probably important. Sure. Um, and yeah, there's, so there's no, it's not that it's a magic formula. And I think that's a realization a lot of people who came into data early on probably had that there isn't, a, there's no, there's no equivalent of the Moneyball stat to kind of solve football. Yeah. There's no, e, there's no magic key. There's no kind of magic wand. It's just, this is not selling the book particularly well, but it's just a way of, yeah, it, the, it's a way of helping you make better decisions. And the thing in football is that a lot of people make really bad decisions literally all of the time. So even if you make some of the, some good decisions, you've got yeah. a massive advantage. Yeah. I mean, that's really true in terms of recruitment. And that is certainly a, a way that football clubs are using data in a, in a more expansive way to identify targets, to identify, um, you know, players who can come in and operate at, at the level that they want to operate. And, and I think we can all see that. And there's this perception as well, I think, sometimes that, you know, if somebody's really advocating for stats, somebody on the other side of things might say, well, you know, I've got eyes. I know what I'm seeing. We don't need this. I know when a player's good. I know when a player's not good. But there are, you know... Um, some good examples in the book of how when data started to be used by football clubs, you had players who were, in in essence, gaming the system, mm-hmm. you know, to show like, oh, my pass uh, completion percentage is very good, but like it's, you know, 93 yard passes from one side to the other or a guy sprinting from one side of the pitch to the other, you know, <laughs> to make it look like he's doing the hard yards, but in actual fact, uh, he's not, you know, so those those benefits, I think, are, are quite obvious. Yeah, I think that there was a stage when, and this is probably a necessary stage, when football had access to a lot of numbers, mm. but very little understanding of what they meant and it was a kind of it was kind of swamped with raw material but no no analysis of that material so yeah the um pablo zabaleta was the player who used to sprint from <laughs> uh, th- he'd wait for free kicks and then just start doing sprints because it would put his numbers up tal ben haim who you may or may not remember yeah um he was the one who, who was famous for just playing loads and loads of short passes to get his passing statistics up and it was because when when clubs were being provided with with data mainly by prozone they they put the the raw stats up on the walls of the gyms alongside the kind of, you know, who did, who won the, the fastest sprint that week and who who's lifted what weight in the sure. gym, because the way that footballers understand everything is through competition and that's completely natural. And that was the way the clubs thought we can use data is we can use the physical stuff to hold people to account. You know, we will be able to see who is slacking from, from the fact that, you know, they've made fewer high intensity sprints than anybody else. And in those early years, which I say, to be honest, probably leads in, I don't know, up to about 2009, 2010, in most cases, you still had this really rudimentary reading of of numbers. And it was assumed that, you know, the more, the better. So if you covered more ground in a game, that stat they always flash up, that probably meant you were working harder. And it was only at, probably about ten years ago that we we all worked out that maybe it just meant the other team had the ball. That you probably <laughs> you probably run a lot more if you've got got the ball less. Yeah. And that kind of nuance of reading those statistics, I think, has become relatively late because football saw it initially as okay. We, football works by counting stuff. It counts goals. It counts corners. It counts yellow cards. It counts all that stuff. So if we can get the number of sprints or the distance covered or um, the passes made, we'll just count it, and whoever's doing it best will mm. will be the winner. And that was for a long time how how it used data. And it was only really the second wave of people that came along and said, actually, you're not quite reading it right. And that's where you start getting quite a lot of outside involvement of academics and physicists and just hobbyists, really. That, And you, see, you still see it on Twitter a lot, that it's people who are genuine, full-on football fans who probably spend loads more time watching football in general than, than I do. And possibly even the, the most fans do, because a lot of fans tend to, to mm. only watch their club, which the Trent Alexander-Arnold debate has proved. Um, <laughs> the whereas, but the um, I think there's no, yeah, it's no surprise that those people came to football and kind of wanted to understand it in the way that they understand the world. You know, you, you if you're a physicist, you will have you will probably see the world through the prism of 
of numbers in some way and you want to apply that to this thing you love and that gave football a totally different insight into itself which I think is where a lot of the really interesting stuff happens as opposed to what happened previously and the best example of it is I think relatively well known although I've had a couple of people get in touch and say oh, I didn't know that story but when Alex Ferguson sold Yap Stam yeah he uh, in theory the story goes did it partly does he looked at the numbers that United were getting from Prozone and he saw that Stam was making fewer tackles and he thought, okay, well, if he's making fewer tackles, he's, he's probably on the way. Again, it didn't occur to Ferdy that maybe Yapstan was reading the game better and so needed to make fewer tackles. And I think that level of kind of relatively sophisticated reading of numbers took a while to kick in because initially football's view was, mm. here's some numbers, the highest one must be the best. What about the, you know, the communication com- coming back to that? Like, there's a great example of, of Michelin in, in Denmark who are well known for being uh, very data driven, but they were having a season uh, where things weren't going well. Manager is under pressure. And inside the club, they're saying, well, look, we can see, you know, based on the the stats that we're being inefficient. It's not that we're not playing well, we're just not being efficient. We're creating lots of chances, lots of opportunities, uh, all, all those kinds of things. But it's a hard sell to football fans, isn't it? When at the end of 90 minutes, it doesn't matter if your XG is 2.4 to 0.7. If the actual G is 1-0 to the opposition, <laughs> nobody nobody really cares about that. Or it's very difficult to get people invested in that. Although I am sort of reminded of when Unai Emery took over at Arsenal, he went on that uh, after losing the opening two games i think there was a 20 game unbeaten run which you know in 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 any season is um you know very commendable but at the same time people were saying this isn't going to last the underlying numbers aren't really uh, uh they they show that this is not sustainable and ultimately you know as that season went on that's that's what came to pass but but that idea of communicating what you know as a football club is a difficult one because you want to keep st- uh, some stuff in in uh, inside and and as you say in the book like a lot of um football clubs had a lot going on from a a data analytics point of view but nobody really knew that much about it yeah and to to in, in this North London derby week, uh, it's a it's a risky kind of parallel to draw. But I think Spurs and Arsenal are both are probably the best examples of that. The mm. Spurs Spurs should have been the Oakland A's. Spurs had every reason to be the Oakland A's. And if Spurs weren't going to be, then Arsenal definitely should have been. Um, and they were both five or six years ahead of everybody else and had this potentially massive advantage and didn't blow it. I think it's probably too hard to say they, they both blew it, but they both didn't they felt to make the most of it mm. and partly i think that is that is a failure of communication it, you you're right it's a, about it, using xg and using your kind of underlying performance data as a justification a lot of the time it's wheeled out by clubs to defend managers they don't want to sack and then when they have eventually sacked them they it is then disregarded immediately and used <laughs> as some sort of kind of you know yeah. kind of numerical nonsense that doesn't really mean anything but i think that as with everything and XG, XG is the best example of this, that a lot of the resi- resi- resistance among fans to XG doesn't really make any sense to me. Does it something that fans, and I'm, I'm not a physicist, I'm not kind of a, a numbers person, but which is why there's no equations in the book. Um, <laughs> but the, um, like we all, as fans, you, you just get what XG means. Like it's obvious what XG means. It is, mm. did we create good chances? And as a fan, even before the term XG existed, that is what you left the game saying. So if your team won 1-0, but only had one shot on goal, you would leave saying, ooh, we're a bit lucky there, weren't we? And Or if your team lost 1-0, but had 25 shots on goal, you'd say, well, do you know what, we lost, but mm. it, it, that defeat feels different. And, you know, maybe that's me being old or something, but I, yeah, if I watch my team play well and lose, I take solace from the fact that they've played well, even though they've lost. And if they if they crap and win then mm. you feel a little bit fluky. And that's kind of what being a fan is. You you know all this stuff because you're a fan because you've got eyes. All that any of this stuff does is is offer a little bit of supporting evidence or put a number on it. Gives it a sort of vague value. So you know that, yeah, if you win a game off an XG of 0.7 as opposed to 2.4, mm. that's probably a pretty fluky win. Yeah. Or it's a or it's a very well executed counter-attacking game plan, which is I'm sure what the manager would say. <laughs> but the um all of those things are quite to me, are quite organic and quite instinctive to fans, and I think it's a it's a resistance to the changing language more than a resistance to the actual kind sure. of underlying idea yeah. that makes a difference. And part of that, I, I do think, is the fault of the clubs for not communicating this stuff 
for being unwilling to tell people, right, this is what we're doing. And that is changing now. The you'll yeah. see clubs more and more frequently refer to the XG is okay, which I think Vendor was I think Vendor was the first to do that in public, was to say, I've seen our XG from these games and we're all right. Yeah. Um but then at the same time XG by itself isn't a it's not a panacea. So if your XG is continually if you're continually underperforming your XG, you still have a problem. Sure. It's it's just that it's not, maybe not the problem that you think it is. It's not maybe your problem is not your problem is not that you can't create chances. It's that you can't finish them. So that it doesn't necessarily solve anything, but it maybe educates you a little bit as to as to where the issue might lie. Yeah, I mean, I think the communication with fans thing comes into is perfect when when we're talking about stat DNA because in the book you lay out how far in advance Arsenal were of most clubs in terms of what they were doing, how granular the uh, the data was, what was available. Uh, at, at first, it was sort of on the outside, but then it was brought internally, so it had access to everything. But ultimately, it was, I, I don't know if offset is the right word or not, by what was happening at Arsenal during that final period of Arsene Wenger's um, era. But like the perception, certainly the perception that I had, like that DNA, it just sounded like, malware at times when it came to Arsenal and and you know what you lay out in this book is that Arsenal had an opportunity that they did not take it it may have been so there's two ways of looking at the story one is that that Arsenal spotted that data was coming Wenger had been a really early advocate of it Wenger yeah. had been on board with with data in the late 90s in its in its sort of rudimentary form so he he and you know, we're pro- there's probably enough water under the bridge now that even the, the most ardent anti-Vendor Arsenal fan would recognise him as an intelligent and forward-thinking man. Um, so it's not really a surprise that he was kind of on board with the idea of, this, there's this new idea of analytics, we think it can be useful, shall we investigate it? Yes, obviously. Um, he saw it, I think, as something that could help rather than a, a lifestyle choice to be kind of bought into completely. Um and they, they end up using stat DNA, buying stat DNA, doing some really advanced stuff in terms of the metrics they were working with. They have access, certainly if you speak to the people who worked at stat DNA at the time, like the the access that they had to all of the data that Arsenal could access mm. was a was a godsend. It was it kind of put them it's not necessarily I don't want to, it sounds like you're insulting them. It's not necessarily that they were brighter than everybody else that was working on it. They were they were certainly extremely bright but they had access to so much more information from inside the club that they could start to kind of really unearth true, various truths about how football is played and what makes a winning team and what sort of thing you need to do. And sure. that would, was, from a scientific point of view, was an incredible advantage. Um, so th- the story that they would tell is that they did some really smart stuff, that they started work on the, the exact term varies from club to club but it's expected possession value and it's basically a way of trying to work out how much each decision a player makes increases the chances of their team scoring a goal that is as as things stand that is the kind of gold standard metric that everyone is looking for because that's what you need you need to know does this player add considerably to my chance my team's chances of scoring goals Um, and that's where all of the other metrics come from xg comes is a basically is a part of that um, so they were doing this, this advanced stuff that a lot of clubs are now only just starting to kind of glom onto. Now, they were they were way, way ahead of the field, apart from maybe one or two teams by tw- by twenty fourteen. Say they'd have been the world leaders in analytics. I think the, the most sophisticated club in analytics, and that changes a little bit with Brentford and Brighton, um, and then Liverpool. But by twenty fourteen, I think Arsenal had this this uncontested place. And the way that the stat DNA's sort of alumni tell it is that they fell victim to the politics of the club that you had you know everything ran through Wenger because he wasn't really good at delegating um, there were other people who were a bit more resistant to data who also had his ear so there was this tension between the data people and the, and the recruitment people not everything was joined up there was there was a degree of stasis kind of settling in anyway because no one was quite sure what Arsenal wanted to be anymore. The money was still relatively tight after the Emirates move, so they were still kind of getting used to this idea that Arsenal's position, rather than challenging for titles, was was you know reliably, yeah, twenty fourteen reliably qualifying for the Champions League, mm. but not really. But then losing to Barcelona in the last sixteen—that's what Arsenal did. That's just who they wanted to be. Um, normally, with a controversial sending off, um, but there is a different version of that story, and that's that if Arsenal don't buy Stat DNA 
or don't start working with them in 2011 and, and then buy them in 2012, maybe that whole demise happens an awful lot quicker. Yeah. Because th th this is one thing that occurred to me while writing the book is that football, I think, has a really weird inability to gauge relative success. So the thing about Moneyball, and you're completely right, that mo without Moneyball, none of, this, none of this happens because football doesn't think, actually, we should do some, some stuff like this, except maybe maybe that's when you do get your Sam Allardyce film. And, and <laughs> certainly something that we're- I can wait world, for that one. <laughs> the, yeah, the world maybe doesn't need. The um, football, the, the thing about Moneyball is that the A's don't win the World Series. That film, that book doesn't end with Billy Bean holding a trophy. I think they win their, pennant race in their division and they make the playoffs and then they get knocked out in the playoffs, I think in the first or second round. Now, if that was football, that would have been treated as a failure. That would have been, well, that 22 game unbeaten run was a flash in the pan. Yeah, yeah. We knew we knew it was a fluke. We knew they weren't good enough. We knew you know, we, we knew that there, it, there was nothing there really. They've, if anything, they've had a disappointing season. Whereas baseball is quite good at understanding that, okay, like the A's have got a lot less money than everybody else. They've done way better than they have done historically. They've made the playoffs, which is success in itself. Maybe there's something there. Maybe what they did worked. Football's really bad for saying, if you don't win the Premier League and Champions League in the same season, then you have failed. And it's that's an incredibly kind of asphyxiating approach to help to, to, to progression because it's basically telling teams that there is only one way to succeed and we occasionally make a bit of a of an exception for like Brentford or Brighton so Brentford being in the Premier League is clearly a, a huge success and people accept that their model must have some merit to it but we we generally unless there's a trophy at the end of it assume that it's it's for little teams who don't really you know who don't really count and it doesn't work with the elite so the elite it's about passion and industry and players um, and the other thing we don't do really, very well is understanding because it's slightly counterintuitive understanding that success can be failing more slowly. So if Arsenal don't buy stat DNA, maybe Wenger doesn't make it to 2018. Maybe they don't get into the Champions League in 2016 and 2017. Maybe it all falls apart much faster because they maybe they keep making those bad decisions in the transfer market. You know, the, the story that's in the book is that he was persuaded that stat DNA were worth it because they would have told him not to buy Park Chu Young or Marouane Shemak. And... He was told, basically, we if we do it this way, the due diligence alone will be enough to stop us making these mistakes or making as many mistakes as we have made. Maybe if they don't start working with stat DNA, maybe they keep making mistakes. Maybe by 20... What, what year did Leicester win the league? 2016? yeah, yeah. So maybe 2016, the year that Arsenal could easily have won the title. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't take a vast amount of stuff going differently for Arsenal to win the league that year. Um Maybe by 2016, instead of being the team that could have nicked it from Leicester, maybe they f they finish fifth and they're out of the Champions League. You know, it, it, yeah, yeah. There is a way of of telling that stat DNA story that I think is incredibly successful. It's just that perhaps it was at the wrong club. Sure. If you see what I mean, that there were other things happening at Arsenal. That sort of fan de siècle air that Wenger had at that stage that made it difficult for Stats DNA to succeed in the way they'd have wanted to succeed. Sure. But maybe in just helping Arsenal fail a, a bit less quickly, they did succeed in a, in, in, in a way that isn't appreciated. Sure. No, I mean, uh, the, the, the example in the book um, is like, w would Arsenal have signed £72 million Nicolas Pepe if Stat DNA had had that? But, you know, at the same time, Arsenal did sign £35 million Shkodran Mustafi under the remit of stat DNA. So there's, you know, transfers are an inexact science at yeah, the no, best of times. It, it, you know? it is really funny. I think, <laughs> I, I think it's in a chapter about Aston Villa or in a section about Aston Villa that, that I, th I hope I make that point that, that everyone involved in data, just like everyone else involved in recruitment, really happy to claim their successes. Yeah. They very rarely tell you about the ones they got wrong. Sure. They uh, don't, no, no one sort of say, no, there's this kid in the, in like the Georgian fourth division who I tried to spend 17 million pounds on. Yeah. yeah, like yeah. No one, and yeah, it, it's not, <laughs> It's not perfect. I think the yeah the Pepe example is a really good one. But yeah, you're right. They they still made bad signings. I mean Gabriel, uh, whichever Gabriel, Gabriel Paulista, Paulista. There's too many Gabriels at Arsenal. Um, he was always dressed up as the first true stat DNA signing. He was the one who came mm. exclusively off their recommendation. And I'd have said that Gabriel Paulista was a decent player who did all right for Arsenal. I don't think he was. Yeah. He wasn't a spectacular success, but I don't think he was a massive flop or anything. No. Um, but he's equally you. You're not gonna. You know. You're not to write a film about signing Gabriel Paulista, are you? You know no. he's not. He's you're not, not dining out on that one. That's for sure. No, and so yeah, no yeah. one wants to take it. No one wants to claim anything but the successes. But again, you can't. There are too many factors that go into recruitment yeah. for any single one thing 
to be an, to make for any deal to be a, an absolute surefire success because you need the players to settle you need their families to settle you need them to get on with their teammates yeah. so there's all this other stuff that happens um all all data all the data people would tell you they can do is they can tilt the odds in your favor sure i mean the the, the line about how sometimes arsenal signed the player that nobody objected to rather than the one that you know, uh, one person or one department in particular was advocating is, is is quite telling. Just a couple of quick things to finish off. One is sort of like, um, wh- where do we go from here? How much more sophisticated can this get? And are we in for a situation where the clubs who can afford to invest the most in analytics and data in this kind of, um, this field are going to have a significant advantage over the ones who don't or who can't do that? Like, is the gap going to get that much bigger or is there only so far we can go with this? Uh, in terms of where, where it goes from here, I think there's, there's there's lots of stuff kind of going on with AI and um, like uh, broadcast tracking data, so the ability to like watch games and analyze them properly just off TV footage. They're the two kind of big growth areas. Um, I think you'll see it playing more and more of a role for more and more clubs that, I think I actually, th- I actually wonder whether we're already starting to see the benefits that it felt this summer that even amongst that ridiculous kind of splurge of transfer spending in the Premier League, there were very few deals that you looked at and thought that is ridiculous. You know, there mm. were quite a lot of deals where you thought maybe he's overpriced or maybe that's a bit, you know, they, they, they don't need that player in that position. But you thought actually, do you know what? That's there's not many that looked insane. I mean, mm. Nunez at Liverpool looked like a big risk. Um, they, I suppose they've probably got enough credit in the bank that you, you, you sort of assume they know what they're doing. But other than that, there's not many that you looked at and thought that's, that's insane. And that, I, won't, I do wonder whether this, the market in general is getting smarter, just more, more and more teams are at least doing yeah. due diligence by, by using data. Um, what about so players? I I, yeah. Oh, the, sorry, the, the other thing I was going to say was, I think that you'll see, yeah, players become more conscious of their data. I think you're seeing it more and more on the other side of transfers yeah. that players, it, agencies are trying to work out where they should put their players by, um, by using data to see where they might fit best. Um, and I think you'll start to see little bits of detail on how data's changing football. So the two examples that are in the book are long-range shooting, which is... Mm. which despite Granit Xhaka, is is dying out. Um, or not dying out, but is diminished massively. And I think the, the way teams cross is changing hugely as well, which might have imp- an impact on kind of how, m- how many headers we see in football. And that in turn changes like the profile of central defenders. So maybe you ca- if you don't, if the game's not as aerial, maybe you can be five foot nine and centre half. Maybe that's not a problem anymore. I don't think we'll ever see anything quite as drastic as the thing in the NBA where the shot map has changed completely from... Yeah from kind of a spray everywhere to it's either under the basket or it's on the three-point line. Um, I don't think it will ever be quite that drastic, but there will be more and more changes that come about and can be traced back to some insight gleaned from the data. Um, what was the second question? Well, I mean, it was about players, I think, um, you know, using it themselves and, and like you say, trying to find the best fit, which I guess only works if there's like a... a uh, a club that is dedicated to its own uh, style or whatever, like that that's separate from the manager because they might say, you know what, uh, X player, you would be perfect for Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool or Mikel Arteta's Arsenal. But if those guys go and the, the, the style of play changes, then that might have an impact on that as well. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And it's th- that's something that a lot of clubs will actually have to deal with at some point when Klopp or Guardiola or, or, or Arteta or whoever goes. Mm. If you have managers that have, who, who basically had the whole edifice of a club built for them and the club has said, this is our philosophy and you know, the next manager who comes in, so, you know, Liverpool's next manager will be some other German kind of high presser and, you know, the next manager at Arsenal City might be a, you know, a kind of a Spanish influenced visionary. But it doesn't really work like that because the next, the next big evolution tactically will be something that counteracts all of those sort of dominant doctrines. So it, it will be interesting to see how much clubs, how quickly those clubs can adapt. The other thing that I think is, is worth picking up on is whether it's, it's something that will exacerbate the gap between haves and have nots, because I think that is possible that if you think like Man City have got, you know, an army of about 35 analysts, all of whom have got these insane degrees in physics and stuff. So it may well be that the clubs who can, can pump the most money at analytics will will do it so much better than everybody else that, that it will exacerbate their, their already existent advantage. But I do think that maybe away from the Premier League, 
where you do have those big, you know, there's the six and then there's everybody else. I do think it maybe closes gaps rather than opens them because I think if you're a, a, a championship club, you can probably do analytics as well as a top 10 Premier League team and have the same budget for that department as they do. Mm. And that there's not many spheres uh, that that you can say that for. So, I mean, Liverpool, who I think are now probably the market leaders in in data, they didn't help the books launch by deciding to be crap around the time it came out, which was very <laughs> inconsiderate of them. Um, the they, I think, have a team of maybe half a dozen mm. analysts, and I, I mean, I don't know what they're paid, but it won't be, it won't be what kind of um, Cristiano Ronaldo earns in a week. You know, it will be. Mm. I'm sure they're on six figures. They're all well qualified um, professionals. But so, if, if you're saying that's half a million a year, if you're a Championship club, you can afford. You can probably afford not far off half a million a year on an analytics department that's just as smart as Liverpool's. And that would give you a huge advantage mm. in terms of snatching low-hanging fruit, being more efficient than your competitors. It is a relatively cost-effective way to be successful. And maybe it saves you money in the long run because in, instead of spending £2 million on that right-back, you spend £1.5 million on that right-back and all of a sudden you've saved yourself your analytics budget. Yeah. So I do wonder w whether the growth actually might be a bit lower down as teams realise actually this is a way we can compete with bigger clubs, with bigger budgets in a cost-effective way. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating. The whole area is fascinating, and um, the book is uh, is excellent. And I would recommend people to uh, to pick it up. Um, and the genie is well and truly out of the bottle. So it's it's now a case of you know how far data is going to drive football and in what direction. Um, but that's for the follow up. That's for the sequel. Uh, I don't know if you get Brad Pitt or Sam Allardyce in the starring role for that one, Rory. But uh, best of luck with it. <laughs> Thank you very much. I am now. I'm determined to make a film about Sam Allardyce with Brad Pitt playing him. But he's going to have to. Um, drink wine by the pint. He's going to have to, do you see the, the Batman movie where Colin Farrell was the penguin? They did a very good yeah, makeup yeah. job, so they'll have to do something similar on Brad Pitt for, <laughs> to make him Sam Allardyce. <laughs> Rory, thanks a million. Thanks for having me. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Thank you very much indeed to Rory. You can find him on Twitter at Rory Smith at Rory Smith. And the book Expected Goals is out now. And if you're looking to get it, why not order it from your local independent bookstore? Because now in these times more than ever. The money we can spend locally in our communities helping to support local businesses is is really important and far more beneficial to all of us than swelling the endless coffers of, of you-know-who. Now, I know not everybody can do it, but if you are in a position to do it, I'm sure your local independent bookstore will be very grateful of your custom. Now, I did mention that um, this episode isn't quite as long as I wanted it to be, and I was hoping to talk to somebody at Arsenal about the way data is being used, particularly in terms of recruitment and scouting. Unfortunately, the person I wanted to talk to was not allowed to come on the podcast. And it's not as if I was going to be asking for trade secrets or, or anything like that. Much of this information is already in the public domain, so that was a bit disappointing. But there you go. What can I do? Apropos of nothing, though, there is a very interesting article on Arsenal.com in which Danny Carbassiun, you might remember him as a former player and somebody who worked in the scouting department, talks about his new role at the club, which is a combination of, of IT and scouting. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes if you want to have a read of it. It is uh, it's a very interesting article. So 
There you go. Right. We will talk Arsenal versus Spurs, the North London Derby on the preview podcast, which will be available to you tomorrow afternoon, as I explained, both on Patreon and free for everybody on the main podcast feed. We'll talk about the game, the tactics. Emil Smith-Rowe, of course, ruled out until after the World Cup with uh, groin surgery, fingers crossed for him. We'll talk about that and much more, whatever crops up in Mikel Arteta's press conference. For now, I'm going to leave it there. As always, thank you so much indeed for being here, for subscribing, for downloading, for your reviews and shares and all the rest of it. Hope to catch up with a few of you. Uh, around the game on Saturday. I'm heading over for my first game of the season and fingers crossed we get the right result. James and I will talk about it on Sunday on the Arsecast Extra. For now though, take it easy and we will catch you on the next one. Until then, cheers. Bye-bye. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for coming along to my talk today. My name is Quincy Plop, and I am the CEO and founder of Data Jizz. Now, you're all very aware of what stats have brought to the game of football. We've got companies like Opta, Prozone, StatsBomb, Stats Torpedo, Stat Grenade, Stat Rocket, and Stat Cannon. But we are leading the market in a brand new metric. Nobody else is doing this. And we are pleased to announce today XT, which is expected twat. If you look at the chart here in front of you, you can see that we've got Spurs striker Harry Kane, who's got an XT of nine. To put that into perspective, the maximum XT any player can generate is seven. But he's got nine. How is that even possible, you say? Well, the answer is very simple. And if you subscribe to Data Jizz today for a monthly fee of just 99 99 you'll find out. Use the code JIZZOFF at checkout for a 10% discount when you go to www.data.jizz.co.au. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.